0: In the early hours of Saturday, October 7th, 2023, an Islamic terrorist organization, which is called by the Arabic acronym Hamas, infiltrated the homes of countless Israeli families and concert goers, murdering, raping, kidnapping, and decapitating over 1,000 Jewish people, and this includes American citizens. But. Muslims and Arabic people all over the world, including here in the United States are celebratory and are shouting joyfully over this attack, expressing, in other words, that the Jews deserved this and that the Palestinians deserve to do what they have done. And for what reason, we're told by countless media members and politicians, that this is a dispute over land, and that the Jews are essentially squatting on Palestinian land, and these are simply the consequences. But is that the truth? Today in this special episode, we will examine biblical and secular history. We will look at these terrorist organizations like Hamas and where their support comes from, all in a pursuit to find the ultimate truth, To answer the questions no one seems to be properly answering, we'll also consider the likelihood of this showing the fulfillment of the end times prophecy. This is a tragedy as old as time, Israel and Palestine. I'm Blake Watson, and this is We The Free. The majority of you are coffee drinkers, and maybe some of you fancy yourselves coffee connoisseurs. Well, whether you're someone who likes to down a quick cup to get a caffeine dose, or you enjoy the art of crafting an excellent cup of joe, you've got to give my friends at Blackout Coffee a shot. They've got bags of ground or whole bean coffee or single-serve pods. They've got many different blends, flavors, and roasts. My personal favorite is Morning Reaper. It's one of their, their medium roasts. Use my code BLAKE23 for 20% off, that's B-L-A-K-E-2-3, for a discount and level up your morning cup with blackout coffee. Dear citizens of Israel, this morning on Shabbat and on a holiday, Hamas invaded Israeli territory and murdered innocent citizens, including children and the elderly. Hamas has started a brutal and evil war. We will be victorious in this war, despite... An unbearable price. This is a very difficult day for all of us. Hamas wants to murder us all. This is an enemy that murders children and mothers in their homes, in their beds. An enemy that abducts the elderly, children, and young women. That slaughters and massacres our citizens, including children who simply went out to enjoy the holiday. What happened today is unprecedented in Israel And I will see to it that it does not happen again. Those are the words of the Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, from Monday, October 9th. Initially, on Friday, or Saturday, the day of the attack, Netanyahu said, We are at war. And by that, he means the nation of Israel has officially declared war against probably, specifically, Hamas. Hamas is actually an acronym which, in Arabic, means Islamic Resistance Movement. Resistance to what? We'll get to that in a moment. Hamas is an Islamic terrorist group who currently governs the whole Gaza Strip, which is one of the two Palestinian territories that exist within the nation of Israel. The other Palestinian territory in Israel is the West Bank on the eastern side of Israel against the western side of Jordan, but the West Bank is governed by another Palestinian group, an Islamic militant party known as Fatah. In fact, these two parties, Fatah and Hamas, were, were warring groups, so the Palestinian control by Hamas is designated specifically to the Gaza Strip, which is a tiny sliver of land in southwestern Israel, which borders Egypt and the Mediterranean Sea. The Gaza Strip is only 25 miles long and about 6 miles wide, yet it's home to over 2 million Palestinians. What is Palestine, Blake? I don't see that on a map. Well, that's correct. Palestine is, is not a country or a state or a sovereign nation because it only exists today as a people living in these two bubbles of land in Israel, which is already a small nation about the size of New Jersey. Now, this hasn't always been the case, which you'll see in a moment. But for now, it is the case. Palestinians are an Arabic people who claim ancestral rights to the entire landmass of what we know as Israel, and even some of the, the Jordan. And, and we'll examine that whole claim today. But the history of Palestine and the Palestinian people is pretty complicated. The, the name Palestine comes from the biblical Philistia, or the land of the Philistines, which you find in the Old Testament. The Philistine Empire was founded in 1175 BC, so that was 3,198 years ago. The Philistines were a non-Hebrew people, obviously, who settled in the southern coastal area of Canaan. Now, chronologically speaking, the Israelites entered into the Promised Land in about 1250 BC, or over 3200 years ago, before the Philistines, or the modern Palestinians, settled into the region. So, if you're operating from the perspective of you know, who was there first, it was technically the Jewish people. But before the Israelites or, or the Palestinians were there, there was another group of people. Do you know who it was? The Canaanites. The Canaanites. The Canaanites were a group of people who lived in the biblical land of, of Canaan on the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea. Biblically, Canaan's geography is described as extending from Lebanon toward the brook of Egypt in the south and the Jordan River in the east. You know what that sounds like? Modern Israel. But again, biblically speaking, this whole area of Canaan covers some parts of Lebanon and Jordan and Syria on top of the whole area of Israel. Canaanites were the wicked, idolatrous people who descended from Noah's grandson, Canaan. That's Ham's son. Canaan was cursed because of his and his father's sin against Noah in Genesis chapter 9. Now, a few chapters later, in Genesis chapter 12, another descendant of Noah, this time, however, through a different son, Shem, a man named Abram, would be living in a place that was something like 700 miles from Canaan, a city in Mesopotamia. God speaks to this Abram in Genesis chapter 12, what is the beginning of a dual-purpose covenant. Go forth from your country, and from your relatives, and from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, And make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all of the families of the earth will be blessed. Goodness. Uh, There is a lot to process in that passage, but there's a lot more to the story. Abram ends up in Egypt because of famine in the land. Abram and his family get kicked out of Egypt for reasons we don't have time for on today's show. So he leaves. They leave. Genesis chapter 13, verse 1, um, in in the King James Version, reads, Abraham, or Abram, went up out of Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him, in the south. So in the Hebrew, the, the word for south there is the word Negev, which is the name of a desert in southern Israel. Anyway, some weird stuff happens with Lot and Lot's family, and then we get to Genesis chapter 15. There were two major parts to God's covenant with Abram. I will make you a great nation, and I will give you a great place. This requires two obvious things. Abram has to have a bunch of offspring and a new place to put down his roots. God told him in chapter 12 of Genesis that he would show him that place. However, we're also shown at the end of Genesis chapter 11 that Abram and his wife Sarai, they don't have any children. In fact, the Bible tells us that Sarai was barren. So chapter chapter 15 of Genesis begins like this. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram says, O oh Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? Since you've given me no offspring to me. One born in my house is my heir. So Abram says, I don't get it, God. I don't have any children. Yet you're telling me that I'm going to be a great nation? Anything that I have right now, I'm going to have to pass along to somebody that doesn't even belong to me. And God says to him, This man shall not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. So shall your descendants be. So there's a discussion about one part of this covenant. But later that, that same day, another discussion was had about the other part of this covenant, this blessing of a promised land. Genesis 15, 18 says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite and the Kenizzite and the Cadmonite, and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Rephaim and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Girgashite and the Jebusite. So this first description is the sum total area. Of the Promised Land, from the River of Egypt, which you can assume to be the Nile, to the River Euphrates, which is a long river that starts in Turkey and ends all the way down in Iraq. That's a sizable area which, modernly, would constitute parts of Egypt, Israel, Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, and Iraq. And the second part of that description was the listing of the tribes or the people groups which currently occupied the area initially described by the Lord. But now, we return to the familial drama and the saga of Abram's offspring. Genesis chapter 16 begins like this. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, Now, behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Now, a lot of you are thinking, bad idea. And you're correct. But this was the apparent custom of the day if someone could not produce children. So Sarai wants to use her servant Hagar as like a surrogate mother. This woman from Egypt and Abraham or Abram complies. What's the problem with this? We'll answer that in a moment. The story continues. After Abram lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. He went into Hagar and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. That means that Hagar couldn't stand Sarai for making her do this. And then Sarai couldn't stand that Hagar couldn't stand her. So Sarai is upset and wants Abram to deal with it. So instead of just firing her or letting her go, Sarai mistreats Hagar so badly that Hagar leaves on her own. So she's out in the wilderness and and something extraordinary happens. Jesus shows up. It says, Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress Sarai. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. So Jesus tells her to go back. Now how do I know this is Jesus and not just some random angel? You'll see in just a moment. Now, this is not all he says to her. The next part is very important for our study today. She's on her way to Shur, which is south of Palestine and east of Egypt, meaning she was headed back home to Egypt when the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, prophesies this to her. I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. Behold, you are with child, and you will bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. The name Ishmael is the Hebrew Yishmael, and it means God hears. And this is his name because God heard the cries of Hagar, the Egyptian servant, and comforts, comforts her with this prophecy of multiplying her descendants. But then he tells her this about Ishmael. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. And he will live to the east of all his brothers. So just think about that for a moment. This Ishmael, an illegitimate child of Abram, a prophesied father to countless people, would be a fiercely aggressive and independent man who doesn't get along with anybody. The angel says he will be against everyone, and everyone will be against him. And the language suggests that he will strike or attack everyone, and everyone will counterattack him. Now, it finishes this part of the story by saying, Then she called the name of the Lord, who spoke to her, You are a God who sees. For she said, Have I even remained alive here after seeing him? Now that's what screams of this angel being Jesus, in addition to you know the angel speaking in the first person authority of the Lord. But chapter 16 ends with Ishmael's birth. Then the next chapter shows God designating new names for for Abram and Sarai, And, and this is the names that you probably know them by. Abraham, which means exalted father, and Sarah, which means princess. And we have another discussion about the covenant, which we'll now refer to from from here on out as the Abrahamic covenant. This is the covenant that God makes with Abraham, and this is what he says. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. Now this poses a critical question. Who are Abraham's descendants? Do these descendants contain all of the children that Abraham would beget? Or are they only the descendants legitimately produced in the proper matrimony of Abraham with his wife, Sarah? In other words, does the Abrahamic covenant apply to Ishmael? Now hold that thought. Let's keep reading. God says to Abraham as a part of his covenant, I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, For an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. This is God Himself declaring who this land belongs to, the descendants of Abraham, as an everlasting possession. It will be yours until forever. Now, later on in that chapter, God tells Abraham that He's going to bless him with a son by his wife, and that she would be a mother of nations. Abraham's response is laughter because he's almost 100 years old at this point. Sarah is also old, and she's never been able to have kids. And look at what Abraham says next. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. The NIV words it like this. If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. In other words, Abraham is upset that Ishmael doesn't get to be a part of this blessed Covenant. God says, No, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you, behold, I will bless him, and will make him fruitful, and and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of twelve princes. And I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. So the Lord clarifies that his promises to Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, would not include Ishmael, but would be passed on through Abraham's legitimate child, Isaac. God has a separate promise of blessing to Hagar and Ishmael, which were. Seeing again here, but Ishmael and his descendants would not be beneficiaries of the promised land of Canaan, or the covenantal blessings of providence and protection from the Lord. Now, this is further clarified by the Apostle Paul, as he uses this situation with Ishmael and Isaac as an explanation for authentic sonship. There was this debate about who the true spiritual descendants of Abraham were, and Paul describes the Christians in Galatians chapter 4 as those born according to the Spirit, like Isaac, the son of promise, and non-Christians as those born of the flesh, the son of the bondwoman. Now, uh, this isn't our time to debate Christianity and Judaism, but I say this to underscore the point that Ishmael was illegitimately conceived while Isaac was the legitimate offspring of Abraham making Isaac the recipient of the Abrahamic covenant and his offspring the rightful heirs to the land, which is now Israel. But the story isn't over. Isaac is born, in Genesis chapter 21 and verse 8 tells us, the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Now Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, Mocking. And by that, it's saying that Ishmael was making fun of Isaac. Now, this is upsetting to Sarah. But keep in mind what the angel of the Lord prophesied about Ishmael. He will be against everybody, and everybody will be against him. So, Sarah asks Abraham to finally deal with this. Abraham seeks the Lord's advice, and God advises him to remove Hagar and Ishmael from their midst. So, Abraham listens, and verse 14 tells us, she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. Now, it's obvious that she's once again headed to her homeland of Egypt, but Beersheba is significant because this is a wide, extensive desert on what would be the southern border of Palestine. And that's where they are when the two of them are about to thirst to death in the desert, and God protects them and reminds Hagar again of his promises. And the story basically ends with this in verse 20. God was with the lad, and he grew, and he lived in the wilderness and became an archer. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him in the land of Egypt. So Ishmael becomes a skilled archer. He marries an Egyptian woman... And they live in the wilderness of Paran, which is located in the northeast section of the Sinai Peninsula, the area called Arabia. Now, this is the first indication to us that the nation that Ishmael would father is the Arab nation. And this is historically confirmed also by the names of Ishmael's sons, the twelve princes, which were prophesied. uh, They're listed in, in Genesis chapter 25. This means the father of the Arab nations was the son of Abraham, the half-brother of Isaac, the exclusion to the Abrahamic covenant, but the beneficiary of God's blessings of offspring. Ishmael, the wild donkey of a man whose hand will be against everyone, would beget an entire race of people who despise and reject their cousins the Jewish people, and seek to destroy them, and take everything that is rightfully theirs. Every bit of what I've just shared is within the pages of the first book of the Bible. However, the rest of the pages of the Bible and other pages of history show us that possession of this land would come in and out of the hands of the Israelites, and this is because A covenant with the the Lord is like a a contractual agreement. I will bless you and your descendants, and I'll give you this wonderful land as long as you honor me and love me above all else. I'm paraphrasing, of course. But as you turn into uh, the books of the prophets and the other pages of the Old Testament, as Israel would rebel against God or turn away from Him, He would allow them to be conquered by a foreign people they would be taken captive they would be they would again be made subject to their enemies as slaves as they were in egypt and this repetitious cycle would revolve for millennia egypt would take control of the southern kingdom in 926 bc the assyrians conquered the northern kingdom in 721 bc the babylonians conquered the assyrians and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple in 586 B.C. The Persians conquered the Babylonians in 539 B.C. Then they allowed the Jews to return to their homeland in 516 B.C., which is when the Jews rebuilt the temple. The Greeks take over in 330 B.C. The Egyptians were at some point relegated responsibility over the Israeli land in 300 B.C. And then here come the Assyrians again, conquering this Egyptian leadership in 198 B.C. A Jewish family, the Maccabees, overthrow the Assyrians, putting the Jewish people back in charge in 167 B.C. And then, of course, the Romans conquered the entire world and took control of this area around 50 B.C. There was a difficult history of of jewish rebellions and another destruction of the temple for the next few hundred years and then once again the persians take control in 614 a.d the byzantine empire swooped in around 628 a.d islamic forces take over in 638 a.d this is who built an islamic temple Um, over the temples of Solomon and David around 700 A.D. Christians, surprisingly, take over in 1099 A.D. during the First Crusade. Muslims take it back in 1187 A.D. And then from uh, 1229 and 1247 A.D., Christians and Turks and Egyptians all battle for control. And then the Ottoman Empire under Islamic leadership, takes control of this area in 1517. And then, after the First World War, the area comes under British control in 1917. And then, in the years 1936 and 1947, the United Nations attempted to divide the area of land into this weird conglomeration of a separate Arab state, And a Jewish state, a two-state solution, which the Jews accepted both times, but all the Arabs rejected both times. In 1948, Lebanon, so this is the year after Israel accepted that offer, the Jews, and, and so a year later, in 1948, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Jordan, and Egypt, all five of those countries attacked Israel at the same time over this issue. But Israel somehow survived. In 1967, Israel was once again attacked by its neighboring Arab countries, and Israel won again. But this time, when they won, they gained control of the areas allotted by the United Nations to the Palestinians, which is the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, and the Golan Heights. It was around this time that the arabs in the area started referring to themselves as palestinians in 1978 listen to me very closely here israel gave the entire sinai peninsula which was bigger in land than than all of israel was and and loaded with rich oil and just gave it back to, to the egyptians because a peace treaty was signed between the two countries, Egypt and Israel. And I think at that point in time, Egypt was the first country, or the first Arab country at least, to recognize Israel as a state. And then in the year 2000, Israel offered to give all of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip to the Palestinians in exchange for peace. And what did they say? Well, they didn't say anything. They just sent suicide bombers in to kill over 1,000 Jews. Now, that's four times so far the Palestinians have declined this two-state solution. In 2005, Israel completely left. Uh, they left out of the, the Gaza Strip, and, and they left it to the Palestinians. In 2008, Israel offered them more land than before, and the same rejection happened for a fifth time. Okay, so you hear me. The Palestinians have rejected a a two-state solution or an offering of land and peace with Israel five times. And between 2005 and 2008, Gaza was turned into a terrorist base of operations because the Palestinians there had opted to be governed by the terrorist group Hamas. And ever since then, Thousands upon thousands of missiles have been fired into Israel indiscriminately, which brings us to today. The promised land, I say I say all that and I, and I sprint through that history of thousands of years just to point out that the promised land has changed hands of possession or control for thousands of years, countless generations, but... It ultimately, ultimately belongs to the the descendants of Isaac, according to the Abrahamic covenant, according to God and, and Scripture. But why is it? Why is it that since Israel has returned to their homeland, they have faced endless assault? Why is it that every time the Jewish nation offers to give chunks of land to the Palestinians... They are always rejected as if to say that the Palestinians won't settle for anything less than all of it. Is the tension prophesied by the angel of the Lord over Ishmael all over a a matter of land? I mean, that's what liberals and Palestinians and mainstream media would have you believe. This is a land dispute. This is about settlements. This is about apartheid. Look at me. Listen very closely to me. People who are only interested in real estate don't chop the heads off of babies. They don't mow down concert goers in the middle of the morning They don't slaughter whole families as they sleep. They don't desecrate the bodies of dead Israeli soldiers. They don't rape and murder Jewish women whose naked bodies, naked dead bodies, they parade through the streets. They don't stack toddlers in cages after either taking them hostage from their parents or killing their parents. They don't finish off dying Israelis by chopping their heads off with garden tools. They don't kill and take hostage the elderly, including people that are already survivors of the Holocaust. Mark my words. This is not about land at all, and it has never been about land. It has always been, always, it has always been about killing the Jewish people. Now, I'm not going to subject you to any of the horrific video clips which the Palestinians are gleefully posting to the internet. I took the time to go through some of it and I'm telling you because I've seen it with my own eyes. I saw whole families slaughtered. I saw them chop a father's head off. I saw them stomping on the heads of deceased IDF soldiers. I saw them mow down and ambush those concert goers. I watched them drag a woman out of a car with bloody pants where she had been violently raped. I saw the faces of the Jewish toddlers, my son's age, stacked into cages like chickens on their way to the slaughterhouse. I watched families sobbing over their deceased children or siblings. I've seen reports saying that Israel is calling on mothers to donate breast milk for infants whose mothers were murdered. And we're supposed to believe that all of this is over land? Over a thousand innocent people have been slaughtered, murdered, raped, kidnapped, or decapitated since Saturday morning. And if not for land... Then for what? How can somebody rectify and validate in the minds of thousands of people, millions, that the right thing to do is this genocidal killing? Hamas is an Arabic acronym which stands for Islamic Resistance Movement. Earlier, I asked you what they're resisting. I think you know now. But let's focus on the first part of the acronym. Hamas is an Islamic terrorist group. And, and I'm done using the vernacular extremist. I'm, I'm not going to say that anymore because this is what the Quran teaches. Surah 476 says, "...the true believers fight for the cause of God, but the infidels fight for the devil." Fight, then, against the friends of Satan. Surah 9.5 When the sacred months are over, slay the idolaters wherever you find them. Surah 9.73 Prophet, make war on the unbelievers and the, hip- the hypocrites and deal rigorously with them. Hell shall be their home and evil fate. Surah 47.4 when you meet the unbelievers in the battlefield, strike off their heads. Surah 48:29. Muhammad is God's apostle. Those who follow him are ruthless to the unbelievers, but merciful to one another. Now, I must also point out that this wasn't just an ancient teaching. Uh, The Ayatollah Khomeini, the former and supreme theocratic leader of Iran, explained, Kill all the unbelievers just as they would kill you all. Islam says, kill them. Put them to the sword and scatter. Kill in the service of Allah, those who may want to kill you. Kill in the service of Allah. We'll get back to Iran and their involvement in this in just a moment. But consider that phrase from the former supreme leader of Iran. When you watch these videos of Hamas slaughtering people and and parading their bodies and then celebrating in the streets, they're all chanting the same phrase. Allahu Akbar. Allahu Akbar. Which is an Arabic, Arabic phrase meaning, God is great. God is great. It would be like an English person committing murder and then shouting, Glory to God! Amen! Interestingly enough, the same phrase is being chanted by Palestinians all over the world as they hold public celebrations of this slaughter of the Jews, including here in America. I saw their celebrations and demonstrations in New York City and Times Square and Washington, D.C. in front of the White House. Most of these uneducated and brainwashed descendants of Ishmael think that this is just and reasonable since the Jews are squatting on their land. But they are blind, somehow, to the evil religious motivation of the terrorists committing these heinous crimes against Jewish people. Ben Shapiro showed a clip of the Fatted, suited slobs who constitute the leadership of Hamas watching the news of, of the death and destruction on a TV and then all of them bowing on the floor to the east to thank Allah for their success. Therefore, again, I say, this is not about land. This is about killing Jews in service to Allah. If Israel were to voluntarily give all of its rightful land, over to the Palestinians. Today, just in order to have peace, the Palestinians would have their land and then would still rip them limb from limb, limb from limb, until there were no Jews left. This is not, I repeat, this is not about land at all. Since Hamas took control and was, and was given control over the Gaza Strip, Thousands of rockets have been fired into Israel to kill her citizens. Hamas strategically and dastardly places their bases of operation and their missile turrets atop schools and hospitals and apartment buildings so that if Israel wants to counterattack, civilians would intentionally be in harm's way. It's been said that Israel uses bombs to protect its people while Palestinians use people to protect their bombs. However, since Saturday morning, nearly 10,000 rockets have been fired into Israel. Not to mention the arms and other equipment used by Hamas terrorists. And all of, uh, a lot of us have been wondering, many people have been wondering, how does a, a terrorist group like this amass such a expensive equipment at such a high volume when they basically have no way of of affording such things as these? That's a great question. And the spiderweb gets bigger. Remember how I said we'd come back to Iran? Iranian uh, foreign ministry spokesperson Nasser Kanani said, What took place today is in line with the continuation of victories for the anti-Zionist resistance in different fields, including Syria, Lebanon, and occupied lands. The current Supreme Leader of Iran, Ali Khamenei, said, God willing, the cancer of the usurper Zionist regime will be eradicated at the hands of the Palestinian people and the resistance forces throughout the region. The top military advisor in Iran, Yahya Rahim Savafi, said, We congratulate the Palestinian fighters, We will stand by the Palestinian fighters until the liberation of Palestine and Jerusalem. In those celebratory statements, you can see the manipulation and the false narrative about settlements and land dispute. And you can see allusions to other terrorist regimes like Fatah and Hezbollah. Now, the Wall Street Journal uh, officially connected the dots of Iran's money and Hamas's attack. They said details of the operation were refined during several meetings in Beirut attended by IRGC officers and representatives of four Iran-backed militant groups including Hamas, which holds power in Gaza, and Hezbollah, a Shiite militant group and political faction in Lebanon. That means that Iran also helped them plan this attack. On Monday, The Washington Post reported, The Palestinian militants behind the surprise weekend attack on Israel began planning the assault at least a year ago with key support from Iranian allies who provided military training and logistical help as well as tens of millions of dollars. Hello, tens of millions of dollars for weapons, current and former Western and Middle Eastern intelligence officials said on Monday. Current and former intelligence officials said the assault bore hallmarks of Iranian support and noted officials in Tehran have boasted publicly about the huge sums in military aid provided to Hamas in recent years. The Post also stated, Current and former intelligence officials confirmed that Iran had provided technical help to Hamas in manufacturing the more than 4,000 rockets and armed drones launched into Israel since Saturday. Now, surely at this point, you've heard people trying to connect United States financial support to Hamas and this attack. Well, this is plausible in two ways. Obama gave tons of money to the Iranians at the end of his time in office, like right before he left. Then Donald Trump used economic pressure, sanctions, and economic influence with with peace treaties and tactical killings of the ISIS caliphate and uh, Qasem Soleimani to practically paralyze the Iranians, not to mention his intense support of Israel. And then Biden comes in and effectively ignores the Trump economic sanctions and pressure, and in fact, lifted some sanctions and unfroze billions of dollars in assets for the Iranians to use for, quote, humanitarian needs. However, Iranian President Ibrahim Ryosi said Iran would spend the money however they pleased. And then add to that another $10 billion the Biden administration greenlit from Iraq to Iran, something else Trump would have never allowed. And now I think you see the reason. But that's only the first thing. The second thing is that in photos, in these photos and videos that you see Hamas posting, you can see the terrorists using American weapons. How in the world did these terrorists get all these American weapons? Well, if you can think back to August of 2021, Biden called for an immediate withdrawal of U.S. forces from Afghanistan, which most horribly led to the deaths of numerous American soldiers and hostages, which Biden abandoned, along with over 300,000 weapons we left behind. That's right. Biden left $7 billion in military equipment to the Taliban and ISIS, which is right next door to Iran. So think about that, America. The equipment meant to protect you is being used to murder innocent Jews in their homeland. And this is all an obvious consequence to a weak American leader who failed in Afghanistan, who has released global pressure against our enemies, who made ignorant moves against Russia, who makes zero threats to communist China, and who doesn't protect his own sovereign border. Putin didn't make a move. Xi was on his heels. Kim was settling down, and and peace was advancing in the middle east when donald trump was our president he displayed the strength and power of america and the world was safer for it now with trump out of office for three years and with weak leadership from joseph robinette biden the world is staring down the barrel of a third world war and we still have 15 months with sniffer in chief while Hezbollah and Fatah lick their chops over Israel's injuries. But Biden has yet another chance, another opportunity here to at least do something. Now there is a vast illusion in this world and this and even in this country, which inverts the proper view of the Jewish people and the nation of Israel. Liberals Uh, fake Christians and Marxist groups like Black Lives Matter and Palestinian immigrants in the United States and all over the world are lining up in support of and celebrating this evil, giving justification to Hamas for these horrific deaths and all for the apparent cause of dirt. Those terrible Jews took their land, so they got what was coming to them. And the liberal logic here is is so... It doesn't make any sense. It's it's hypocritical, even. They'll line up to support this Islamo-Nazi group in the Middle East and then go march for women's rights and equality and and sexual identity rights, while out of the other side of the mouth they're they're publicly supporting a group of people that would decapitate them in a heartbeat. The same people who, who rape and murder and objectify women who will beat and rape a woman to death for showing her hair and who would publicly execute somebody for being gay. Now, there's two more things I have to address before we go today. And the first one is this. I've seen so many people and preachers pushing doomsday theology in light of these events. And while most people are are innocently uneducated the rest are intentionally manipulative i have shown you today in countless examples that this sort of thing has happened to israel over and over numerous times so this isn't anything new but biblically speaking every passage of scripture which we don't have time to go through today that describes what the end of the world would be like, of course, describes what is happening today, but it also describes what was happening then, 2,000 years ago. I'll just use one passage as an example. In 2 Timothy 3, 1-5, through Paul says this, in the last days, the last days, difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness although they have denied its power. All right, so so that was that right there was written about 1900 years ago. And it was just as true then as it is now. In other words, We have been living in this season, this long season of the last days since Jesus' time. Now, that doesn't make much sense to a finite human being who exists within the confines of time and space. But to a God who exists beyond these boundaries of time and space, who has existed eternally and through His omnipresence is concurrently at every point in time, a thousand years is nothing to Him. And one more thing on this subject, anybody that claims to know when it's happening, like they've somehow put the biblical pieces together, apparently knows more than even Jesus did. The Son of God Himself said this in Matthew 24, 36-37. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son of But the Father alone. The problem is a lot of preachers and book pushers manipulate people with what I call doomsday theology, where they try to twist people's arms with end of the world talk in order to get them down the aisle or in order to persuade them to make a decision or buy a book. And it happens too often, and it's why you see so many people saying this stuff right now. It doesn't happen much anymore, but I'm old enough to know that countless times preachers have written books telling people when the world will end, and they've been wrong every time. They're almost like the climate change people who tell us that the world will end if we don't give them our money and surrender all of our free will, or else humanity will become extinct and the world will explode. Have I made enough people mad yet? Now, uh, many of you have expressed also your concerns for our own safety. And you've heard that numerous Americans were either killed or have been taken hostage in Israel. Um, You know, I I would talk more about that, but I I don't want to take away from what the Jews are facing today. But you surely have seen some of the videos over the last decade of the Iranians chanting death to Israel and also death to America, almost like they're one and the same and synonymous. And you wonder if American involvement here is safe and justifiable. And, and, and this just on top of the warnings from these exact terrorist groups uh, warning us like to dissuade us from our involvement. Now, next week... Um, I'm going to continue on this vital subject in the second segment of the show as we study the biblical perspective on war, self-defense, and two distinctions in taking a life, Ratzach and harag. In the meantime, there's a couple of things that you can do. First, pray for the Jewish people who have been persecuted for thousands of years. Second, pray for the safety of the innocent Arabs who also call this area home, yet do not support these terrorist organizations. Third, pray for our leadership. The world has been destabilized by weak American leadership. We must be strong In order to prevent further catastrophic damage to humanity. And finally, I've got some homework for you. I want you to look up and research Operation Wrath of God. Operation Wrath of God. And also, I want you to look into the Six Day War of 1967. And join me in the second part of next week's episode as we continue on this subject. Well, that's gonna do it for me. What'll it be next time? We'll see. For now, go and be the salt and light you were meant to be, and we'll see you next time on We The Free.